All right, so today I want to talk to you about something for a second. Have you ever thought about how much space the human mind can hold? Really, have you thought about like, I know for me personally, I worry about this. Like when I learn some random silly fact from a kid's TV cartoon from one of my kids watching it, like knowing all the names of the Paw Patrol characters, like what important medical fact am I going to forget during CPR on somebody that's going to cause me to like, like I stress at this. I worry about this overnight, right? Well, Scientific American recently had an article published where they estimated that the human brain is capable of storing something like 2.5 petabytes of data. So nerd out with me for a minute here. I had no idea what a petabyte was. I had to look this up. This is something on the order of 2.5 million gigabytes of information, which, okay, we know what a gigabyte is, data plans, all that kind of stuff, dating myself a little bit. But still, that's a number that's so large, I feel it's kind of hard to grasp. It's like the national debt. I, it's a big number. I know it's a number. I don't know. It, it's so big, I can't even like put that in like, okay, it's a lot, I guess. I don't know. But to put this in a more tangible spot, let's think about this way. If our brains were a DVR, a digital video recorder, for those of you who are still thinking back in like DVD days and Blu-ray, all that stuff, and we were to convert this memory into TV shows, this is enough space to record 3 million hours of television. Again, this is still like the national debt. I don't know how many hours 3 million is. Like, is that 24 in a day? And I'm going to do some math up here. It's going to make me look really silly in a second. Thanks, Paw Patrol. Um, anyway, so if our brains were a DVR and we were to store this information and you were to play it back on a TV, every thought you had, everything you remember, all these things continuously, nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for until it was done, you're looking at 300 hours. 300 hours, or excuse me, 300 years, not hours, that's a lot, bad math. Again, thanks, Paw Patrol. 300 years of my life to play every single thought my brain could supposedly hold. Again, this is just an estimate. We don't know how much space a memory actually takes, and it's kind of hard to measure that. But why am I bringing this up? So instead of thinking about your brain as a DVR, let's think about God's DVR for a second. And on his video library, he's got every single second of every single thought of every single thing that each and every one of us has ever done recorded. The good, the bad, the embarrassing, the fun, the sad, all these things. Every minute in high definition, full surround sound is recorded on his DVR library. I want you to think about this for a second. What videos from your past would you be most ashamed of or most embarrassed about if they were playing for everybody else in this room to see on the monitor behind me? What videos are you hiding secretly? Jesus is going to walk us through this text, and we're going to learn that these secret sins and a fear, a misplaced fear of man lead us into hypocrisy that's contagious. But that honesty that's springing from a true fear of God is the cure for this contagious hypocrisy. So Luke, 1 and, or Luke 12, verses 1 through 3, I'm going to reread this again. He says, Meanwhile, after a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling on one another, he began to say to his disciples first, be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, don't be confused here. Jesus is not telling a secret to his disciples, even though there's these big crowds, thousands of people stomping on each other to get close enough to where they could, they could hear him. But he's reiterating a warning from a past. But before we talk about that, this non-secret that he's telling his disciples, what exactly is a secret, since we're talking about secret sins and motivations behind them? Well, a secret is something that's meant to be kept, or more specifically, something that's meant to be kept from other people. 
So I'm not talking about surprise birthday parties because, you know, that's a great, okay, if that person learns about their birthday present before their birthday, they might not be as excited, but they're still going to be happy about it and there's not going to be any harm, no foul, right? I'm talking about the things that we don't want other people to know, period. Now, going back to what Jesus is warning his disciples about here, I want you to think back to Luke 11, verses 38 and 39 from last week when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he said, when the Pharisees saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner, but the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and evil. So this is something, when skipping forward to our, ch- our verses today, that Jesus is repeating this warning. Why is this repetition important? Anywhere in the Bible, any for that matter in our lives, that you see something repeated over and over again, it tells us two things. First, that this thing that we're hearing is important. It's there for a reason. You get multiple signs before you get to a sharp curve in the road saying, slow down. No, really, I mean it, slow down. And then you get the guardrail that says, I told you so. Like, we, we repeat things so that we want to make sure that people understand their importance. Second, Jesus understands that in order for us to remember these things, being the epitome of the master teacher he is, that he knows the key to long-term retention of this important warning is spaced repetition. So just like when you're studying for an exam or a test, you study it once and you set it aside for a day or two or three and you come back to it, study it again, and you repeat this cycle a few times, this leads to long-term retention and comprehension of that material in very much contrast to studying the night before a test, binging, in which you might really do well in the next test the next day, but if you ask that same person that question a week later, that information is long gone. So Jesus is repeating this warning, one, because it's important. He wants us to know that this is important, and two, he wants us to remember it. But why do we keep secrets? Like, what is the reason that drives us to keep these secrets? We're born with the desire to interact with our environment in such a manner that leads to a positive result for us. We want to make things warmer, so we start a fire. We want to have a given response, so we do something to make these things happen for us. But in our daily interactions with the people that are make up the largest part of the important part of our environment, we a lot of times hide our emotions and we hide our fears and we hide the reasons for the things we do from them because we don't want them to look at us in a different light. We want to keep that albeit false pretense of a positive light or what we think their opinion of is us, of us in a good light. We don't want them to know what's really going on. But what is this? This is hypocrisy, right? And this is pride and fear of what people might think from whether it's at work, at school, at church, in CG, in our families. It's a fear of what those people are going to look at us differently if they really knew what was going on in our lives. Again, Secrets are not inherently evil like I talked about, but when we allow our fears to shape our interactions in such a manner to deliberately conceal our fears and the motivations behind them, that's when we start dancing with hypocrisy and lying, and those are definitely, definitely sins. Hypocrisy is a sin of pride, and our fears of others' reactions to us prevent us from being honest. And this is one of the biggest lies that society has told us, We are taught from a very young age that it is not okay to not be okay. It's not okay to not be okay. That's what we're taught. Life's a dumpster fire, but okay, everything's, everything's supposed to be great, right? It is. 
Otherwise, there's something wrong with us. There's something broken. Even though all of us live in a broken world, we're all struggling with something, whether it is greed, lust, whether it's worry or anxiety, fear, depression, concerns, we're all struggling with something. None of our lives are perfect, and we're all lying to each other because we're afraid of knowing what each other would think about us, knowing if we all knew that we weren't okay. It's not okay to not be okay, right? But what does this fear stem from? Hypocrisy starts when you have a misplaced fear. And this is a fear of man rather than a fear of God. These secret fears that are misplaced lead us to motivations that lead to insincere actions. And while these actions can provide us with a temporary ego boost or they can lead us to a temporary sense of fulfillment, again, this is just temporary. Sorry, I lost my clicker for a second. No, there it is. But again, this temporary ego boost leads to two things. One, it affects two different groups. It affects us first, but then it affects everybody else second. How does it affect us? Well, it affects us because I may say I want to do this great altruistic thing. I may want to go over here and do this charitable event, this whatever this great thing is. But if this is stemming from my desire to have you guys look at me in a positive light versus me having the desire to bring him glory, then what this is is a wrong motivation, and my insincere actions are going to come back and harm me. I'm temporarily going to be looked at, oh, great job, good boy. You did a great thing. All these things are great. But in the end, just like your new insert device here or your car here, that new car smell wears off, just like Stephen talked about last week, being an honor hound is a temporary fix. It leaves you unfulfilled, And each time you seek after that next fix or that next hit of that ego boost, it takes more and more of it to get that same same level of boost. And ultimately, this is going to lead to a spiral that's going to go out of control, and you're going to become more fake than you know how to do with itself because you're going to have to be more insincere and to find other ways to get that same level of admiration from other people. Now, I said the second person this is going to affect, and I would argue that this is even more important, is how it affects other people. How does this affect other people? Well, let's say first that you see me, again, saying I'm going to go do this great and wonderful thing that I talked about today in service, and now I'm going over here tomorrow, and I'm going to run into a believer or somebody else in the congregation who I think is a believer, and they see me acting in a way that's contrary to what I said I was going to do yesterday being today, whether this is at work, at standing in line to HEB, or if this is standing in some other thing where I see them at school or some other social event, what is it going to do to their faith? Well, it's going to make them question because if they're working under the assumption that I'm okay and that all of my life is right and I'm in great standing with God, that I'm doing this for the right reasons, now they're coming back and looking at me and saying, oh, well, that's definitely out of character, right? And now, at worst, they're going to think less of me. But worse than that, they might start questioning their own faith and what this whole being a Christian thing's about. So these two people have two different responses, right? But they lead to the same place. They lead to me tripping them. I become a stumbling block, preventing them from having a genuine relationship with God because of my insincerity. They now have trouble seeing him because of me. I'm the reason that they're tripping. Not just myself, I'm taking other people down with me in glorious fashion. Now, I know when I said hypocrisy, the first thing that most of your minds would have jumped to is going to be one of two places. One, 
religious hypocrisy in the church because, you know, the church is full of hypocrites, right? And two, if not there, then it might be political hypocrisy because, again, actions said and actions done are not necessarily exclusive to the church, right? But that's probably the first two places that everybody's minds jumped. But ultimately, what it comes down to is our insincere actions stemming from secret misplaced fear lead us to causing other people to stumble and not mention ourselves. If you look in verses 4 through 7, Jesus tells us, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are not all counted, are all counted, but don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. What idols are you hiding? What secret sin are you still clinging to? And what are you afraid of more than God? Think about it. What are you afraid of more than God? Fear serves a purpose, and just like we're born with a desire to have our environment respond to us in a positive way, we have fear that we're born with to help us preserve our lives. If something's hot, we learn quickly, I don't want to be burned because that was terrible, so I don't touch the hot thing anymore. That fear has a purpose, right? But it's when we start circumventing a godly fear with a fear of other things, specifically in this case talking about the fear of man, is where we start having issues. And this fear of self-preservation leads us to the hypocrisy we were talking about. But these fears keep us, cause us to do a couple things. One, they can have us hide them. So, oh, my mask is back on. Yay, life stuff. All right, mask back on, get it. Two, they cause us to keep secrets. Uh, again, kind of a mask. Maybe bad, maybe not. They cause us to fight. Or, in like the case of Jonah, they cause us to run away. They cause us to flee. But I want you to remember this. God is aware of our motivations, no matter how much we try to convince ourselves otherwise, he knows every reason and every thing we do and the reasons behind the things we do or don't do, regardless of what we think he can see. He knows everything about each and every one of us and the universe he created. Jesus is saying that beyond any fear beyond the fear of God is basically a waste of time. And it's an admission on our part that we don't think God is any scarier than falling down a flight of stairs or being the subject to some random act of violence or whatever that case is. We're not afraid of him any more than I'm afraid of losing my job tomorrow at work. That's what he's essentially saying. If we're fearing these things instead of fearing him, then we're missing the point. He knows what we need in our lives. And regardless of whether I lose my job tomorrow or not, he's capable and has the ability to take care of me because he knows me and what I need to be me. So I don't have to worry about that. That's that's an anxiety that I'm putting on myself that causes me to wear a mask because now I'm afraid of this, but I can't let my boss know I'm afraid of that or I can't let my wife know I'm afraid of that. So I put on the mask and I lie to those people, right? But God knew that it would be difficult for us to love and respect and to fear someone that we'd never seen, heard, felt, or spoken to, especially when we live in an environment to where we're constantly bombarded with the message that church is outdated it's no longer useful. Science is supreme. We can reason through whatever problem. If we just have the right blank, we can get the result that we want. Church doesn't matter anymore. God's not real. It served its purpose before we knew better. This is the message that we're constantly bombarded with, right? So Jesus in God in the flesh came down to us for that reason, so that we would be able to look back and say, no, he was real. He is real. 
and he is still able to do the things he promised that he would do for us and the things he did in the past as an example that bear that witness. But in order for us to really replace our fear of man, these misplaced fears that lead to hypocrisy, we have to replace them with a genuine fear of God. But what does it take to actually realize what a fear of God means? In verses 8 through 10, Jesus says, And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. A genuine fear of God begins with us admitting first who God is, who he was, who he still is, and who he's going to remain to be, and that's the all-powerful, all-righteous creator and Lord over us and the universe that he created. We must understand that his righteousness shines in every corner of our lives, on every video in our library on his DVR, is spotlighted and is held against that standard, whether we want to hide it or not. Our videos are for bare for him to see. But we can't fear God without acknowledging who he is and what he's done and who he will do. But why is it the Bible takes a second here to say that we can be forgiven for disknowledging or not acknowledging who Christ is, but we can't be forgiven for doing the same for the Holy Spirit? Is this saying that the God as Jesus and the Son is not on the same level as the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's more important, or that either of them are more or less important than the God the Father? No. Hear me out what we're saying here. Jesus describes himself in many places as saying, I stand outside the door of the heart waiting for the door to open so that he can come in with us and live in our lives. He's standing outside the door knocking. But this isn't just something that's applying to non-believers. He's also talking about the church at large. If you look in Revelations 3.20, when he's talking to the church at Laodicea, he specifically says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Rejecting Jesus in this sense or blaspheming the Son of Man is talking about a singular one point in time. This is a single event saying, not today, Jesus. I'll, maybe I'll get saved and I'll know you and I'd like to open the door tomorrow. That's what this is saying. Think about the example that Peter set at Christ's trial when literally he could hear him. Three times he said, I don't know who this guy is. And yet Peter was forgiven for each of those three times and still ended up being one of the bedrocks of the early church. How does this differ from rejecting or fearing the Holy Spirit? Well, who does the Godhead send to us once we become believers? Looking in Acts 2, he told the disciples and the early believers there to wait until the Holy Spirit came upon him. And it's the Holy Spirit that God promises to live within us each and every day from the time we open that door until the time we go to be with the rest of the Godhead in heaven. So rejecting the Holy Spirit, rather than being a singular point in time, is a continual rejection of God's authority and his right to rule in our lives. It's an everyday, ongoing decision that says, no, I will not have you as my king. I will not have you in charge. And it's this ongoing continual rejection that's unforgivable because we're never willing to submit to his rightful rule in our lives. Now, please, church, hear me on this. I am absolutely not saying it's okay to say, hey, God, I know you're wanting to talk to me today, and I think I should probably accept you as my savior, but I've got things I want to do tonight, so can we have this conversation tomorrow? I am not saying that. Please don't confuse me on that one. We're not promised how long we're going to have on this earth. I don't know that I'm even going to finish this sermon. I don't know if I'm going to fall down the stairs walking out of this building today and drop dead. 
if I knew for a fact that I was going to get in a car wreck at the intersection of uh, 14 and Rosewood, when I left church today, you know what I would do? I wouldn't drive that way. I would go down the height, I would go down the night's way and turn around that way and avoid the wreck. But I don't know that. I'm not promised that. So if you feel that pull in your heart, do not, please do not reject the sun today if you're given that opportunity because we don't know how many we're going to have. But just like Peter denied Christ and was able to be forgiven, the continual rejection of the Holy Spirit, if you look in Exodus when Moses is dealing with Pharaoh, what does it say after every one of the miracles that, or one of the, I guess, miracles of one plagues the others, that Moses, through God, brings on the uh, Egyptians? He says something along the lines of, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he hardened his heart yet still, or he hardened his heart again. This continual rejection of God's authority is the unforgivable part. But rejecting the Holy Spirit is a continual rejection of his authority in our lives. Think about it. If we continually reject God, we are in essence saying that we don't fear God any more than the drunk driver that's going to kill us outside. We don't fear God any more than being the subject or the victim of some random act of violence. We don't fear God, the creator of hell and heaven, the judge by which we are measured against, any more than getting struck by lightning. Now, I feel like I can go outside and be pretty confident I'm not going to get hit lightning to, by lightning today because it's sunny outside. But you know what I don't do in a thunderstorm? I don't go outside and play in the thunderstorm because I don't want to get struck by lightning. And yet the chance of me actually getting struck by lightning is what, like one in a million? I don't actually know this number. I'm making it up, but I feel like it's pretty small, right? But yet I still don't go play in the thunderstorm. So why do I play with life the same way? We've talked about what a genuine fear of God is and where it begins, but it ends with us accepting the fact that despite even our best intentions, that it's only through Christ's actions on the cross stemming from God's love for us that we're able to enter into his glory and avoid eternal damnation. Transitioning from a fearful life to a God-fearing life strips hypocrisy and sin of its power. What does that look like? What's it look like to transition to a God-fearing life and how does that help us? All right, so I know a lot of you guys are like me, like notes, like easy steps. If I give you this two points, like I can leave here and make a cake and it's great and I don't have to worry about the rest of the week. Well, I'm not going to tell you it's as easy as don't be a hypocrite because you didn't need me to stand up here and talk to you for a half hour saying that's bad. But what I am going to tell you is look in Luke 10 verses 27 and see what Jesus said about this in two easy steps or maybe not so easy steps. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbors yourself. All right, is this a cop-out? No, but God is showing us here that it takes true love for this stuff to happen. But what does that look like? Think about what God did for us. Did we go up to heaven to meet him before he loved us? No, he first loved us, right? Think about how uncomfortable or awkward it must have been and how subsequent great God's love was for him to want to leave heaven where he's worshiped by beautiful beings eternally everything thought desire of his is at the power of his own breath and mind anything he wants how he wants it when he wants it as he wants it like that but yet not because of anything i or we were doing did he say i love jeremiah enough to leave this glory where i'm at to go down to where i don't even have a servant I have the things that I have by the blisters on my hand. He came down in pretty much the most opposite fact and the most opposite stance in life that he could have from where he was used to being. 
And to say he might have felt awkward or uncomfortable at that is a gross understatement, right? Yet he still loved me and you enough to leave that to do that for us. Well, I'm challenging you to be just as uncomfortable and awkward as God. I want you to be willing to confess your sins, be willing to be held accountable by others, and I want you to know and think about what does this honesty look like at home? What's it look like at community group? What's it look like at church or work or in our marriages? Now, I'm not telling you to walk up to the next stranger you meet when you leave here and you're going to wherever it is your day takes you and start telling them every terrible sin and everything you've ever done in your life. So I'm going to date myself here a second. You guys remember the movie Goonies? And so there's a small kid there, and I think his name was Chunk, and he's getting kidnapped by these robbers who are trying to get some information out of him in this quite comedic interrogation. But poor Chunk here is scared witless, and he starts spilling the beans on every single thing he has ever done in his life, from stealing candy, pulling hair, and these, these, the, the robbers are like, I just want to know where the treasure was, man. Like, where's your friends? And he's like, but I took the candy bar and threw Don't be Chunk. Please don't be like Chunk. You're going to scare this person you're talking to the waiter, the server, the cashier, wherever it is you're doing, and you start unloading what you did in second grade on them, they're going to think a lot of things about you, and none of them is going to be that you're honest. They're going to think you're strange. Please get away from me. The cops are getting involved. Maybe. I don't know. But there's going to be lots of questions that you don't want to answer. Don't be chunk. But what I am telling you to do is I want you to be honest with them in such a manner of when they walk up to you at work or at school and they say, hey, how are you doing? What do they expect you to say? Everything's great. Dumpster fire. Great. That's what they expect, right? Because that's the polite thing because, again, it's not okay to not be okay. They expect us to say things are going great. But I'm challenging you to be awkward and saying, hey, you know, this weekend was rough because I got in a fight with my kids or I had a disagreement with my spouse or I'm nervous about this project at work. I'm anxious about this assignment. I'm anxious about what my future looks like. I'm cons- like, it doesn't have to be something great. It just says, hey, I had a little struggle this weekend with this. How was your weekend? And you can leave it like that. But you know what it's going to do? It's slowly you taking off this mask that then lets the other person know, hey, this person's willing to be honest with me. But here's the best part. You know in advance this is going to be uncomfortable because you're going to leave here and go to work tomorrow morning and be like, yeah, who's the, who's the unsuspecting individual that's about to get unloaded on my chunk? It's Here we go. Let's do this. So own it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Because you have that advantage. The person on the other end is going to be like, oh, I just wanted you to say hello, and like now you're like telling me about what you fought with your wife over. This is really weird and uncomfortable. Great. Own it. All right? Don't gossip, but own it. Because what these little conversations do, and you consistently being honest with other people, it's letting them know that you're a safe person to talk about. If you're willing to take your mask off even a little bit for them, over time, they might trust you enough to where they're willing to take their mask off and say, hey, you know what? I'm not great this weekend. I got in a fight with my, or whatever that worry or concern is. And you know what? When that person starts reciprocating, just like God came to us where we were because he loved us first, them reciprocating, us being willing to be awkward to go to where they are, is us showing them a glimpse of what God's true love looks like. And when we start doing this, we're actually meeting people with where they're at And now they have a chance to see God through us. Not because of us, but through us. Instead of being that stumbling block because I've got my my happy mask over here and I'm tripping people left and right because I'm a big block. Now they're actually able to get that line of communication, at least get that thought like, hey, maybe there is something to this. Maybe the church isn't full of hypocrites. Maybe people are real and maybe it's okay for me to not be okay. Like if he's not okay, maybe somebody else is. Like maybe I'm, 
it's okay for me to ask for help. We don't know what those little conversations and consistent honesty are going to do for us. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward. But I want you to give them an honest response instead of a polite one. Secrets, secret sins, and misplaced fears lead us to hypocrisy. And hypocrisy as a sin does nothing at all except divide relationships. It divides marriages. It divides friendships. It divides families. It divides churches. It does nothing but divide. That's the only thing it does. It ruins relationships because what you're essentially doing is not only lying to yourself, but consistently lying to other people. So I want you to be willing to be awkward by being consistently honest. And this consistent honesty eliminates the fear and the idols we try and hide. It gets our ego, our pride, out of the way when we speak openly to other people because God is able to use these seemingly insignificant conversations and consistent honesty to open up avenues for his eternally big plans. Pray with me, church.